Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. How many chapters are in the book of Genesis? 50, exactly, 50. So what's halfway? 25. 25. So if we complete 25 chapters out of the 50, we're halfway. We are halfway Mm -hmm. through the book. I'm not breaking it down by word or verse. I'm just breaking it down by chapters. (laughs) All right, some chapters are a little longer than others. But uh, we are halfway then through the book of Genesis, and we're resuming today with Genesis chapter 26. We're probably going to be getting through, God willing, of course, verses 1 through 6. And sometimes verse 6, some of your Bibles will split that up and they'll put it with the next section. I'm going to look at it as kind of the end of this section. But anyway, let's review a little bit, though. What did we study last week? Last week, one of the things that we looked at was that Esau sold his birthright to his conniving, slightly younger brother for a bowl of stew. And you'll remember how, as we were looking at that, we thought, man, what a fool. And surely he was. What a fool. To trade something beautiful and lasting and permanent with God's blessings associated with that for something that just met a temporary craving. How foolish that is. But at the same time as we're pointing the finger at at Esau for doing a foolish thing, we need to be careful because Satan has for all of us a bowl of stew that smells good to us, you know? And we might be able to say, hey, you know what? That was a foolish thing for him to do when at the same time we might go, oh, but this bowl smells pretty good. (laughs) You know, I might be willing to trade something for that. And so we just need to recognize that uh, the fight is on. Satan wants to offer us something in exchange for our relationship, our healthy relationship with God. He's got something to offer us that is just right up our alley, what we're looking for, that could compromise our eternity or our future, as Esau compromised his destiny in a sense. But that's too sad. Let's move on to something else. (laughs) Genesis chapter 26, verses 1 through 6. Somebody mind reading verse 1. There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. This chapter, I should tell you, this chapter is primarily involved with Isaac. Okay, this is the son of Abraham, the promised son, the son through whom the promises are to be conveyed. When you talk about the amount of material devoted to any single person in the book of Genesis, Abraham, he got a lot of material. Isaac, not so much. It's like this chapter and a part of next chapter. He's going to get some mentions here and there, but it's going to be a very small amount of information that's going to pertain to Isaac when you compare it to the amount of information that pertains to Abraham and to Isaac's son Jacob. So Abraham gets lots of airplay. Jacob gets lots of airplay. But here's Isaac in the middle, and he's not going to get much airplay. But this chapter is for him. And uh, like I said, a little bit more of the next chapter as we'll be looking at that as well. So we find from verse 1 that there's a famine in the land. I want to talk a moment about famines. When's the last time you had a famine? We don't have famines so much. We don't experience famines in our day and age, in our society, where we live, where we're used to living, right? Famines are kind of like something from the ancient past, something you read about in the Bible. But there are still famines. There are famines that are still current in our present day in other places in the world. We just don't experience it. We take for granted 
that there's always going to be a grocery store that's always going to have its doors open, that's always going to have food for us, not realizing that this is not a luxury shared by other people in the world. You know, So take it for what it is. Take it as a blessing of God that we haven't experienced that kind of need. But at the same time, do you imagine that if you had to go through a famine, if those grocery doors were closed, if there wasn't food on the shelves anymore, do you suppose that would drive you to a deeper relationship with God? <laughs> it might, right? So on the one hand, I say count it as a blessing. But on the other hand, I also say those could be real times of purification. And I also want to caution and recognize that famine isn't just something from the ancient past. Like I said, in other places of the world, they experience famine modern day. But the Bible also promises there's a time yet future where there's going to be famine. All right? So just because we haven't experienced it yet doesn't mean it's not something that we won't ever experience. Okay? So um, a couple of other things to recognize about the pattern of the Bible. When you find places where in the Bible it talks about famine, not all the time, but sometimes it's God's way of rocking people's worlds. Sometimes it's God's way of getting people's attention. Sometimes it's God's way of saying, you're going down a path as a nation, and I want you to recognize this is not the direction I want you to go. So I'm going to rock your world. I'm going to bring some calamity into your life. I'm going to bring a famine. And how you respond to that famine, I'm hoping, will redirect you and will bring you back to me. Will cause you to rely upon me more, calling out to me more to meet your needs. Because if your needs are met by Vaughn's, if your needs are met by Albertson's, if your needs are met by your local grocery store... Are you really relying upon God? If the stores are all closed, God, where can I get food, right? It's going to start to really you know, cause you to rely upon God a little bit more. And Jesus, in teaching the Lord's Prayer, what does he say? He says, give us this day our daily bread, right? We, if you probably are like us, we go out shopping maybe once a week, and we bring home lots of food. We don't bring home just what we need for the day. We bring as much food as we can stuff in our fridge and stuff in our freezer and put in the pantry, right? And then next week, we're going to do it all over again. And unfortunately, in between, we end up with a lot of waste. We end up with food we couldn't finish. And we're like, oh, this is spoiled, and I only ate half of it. This spoiled, and I didn't even open it. You know. And so we've got situations like that where give us this day our daily bread was the reality of the ancient world. It was a daily reminder to rely upon God. And here we don't have that. We've been deprived of that because we've set up for ourselves a good system of providing food so far for everybody. Some of the things about famine, though, I mentioned that sometimes God can use famines to draw people closer to him or to bring judgment upon a nation. In Jeremiah 14, 12, we have an example of this. Jeremiah, when they fast, I will not hear their cry. This is God speaking. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. In Ezekiel 14, 12 through 13, the word of the Lord came again to me saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. And we read a verse like that and we go, man, that's, that's kind of harsh. But you know, God's purposes are to wake you up. It's kind of a wake up call. Do you suppose though, if, if you didn't already do that, what I want to do is I want to read that exact same two verses again. And ask yourself, could that ever happen in my country? Could that ever happen here where I live? The word of the Lord came again to me saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. God's not limited in where he tries to draw people back to him, right? He can do this here just as well as anywhere else. Now, one thing I do want to make clear, though, famine is not always the judgment of God. Just as suffering in a person's life doesn't mean that person has sinned, okay? 
So famine is not always an indication that God is judging the land, but sometimes that's what shows up in the pattern of the biblical writers. Uh, Amos. Amos has an interesting verse about famine. Amos chapter 8, verses 11 and 12 say this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. It's a famine of the word of the Lord. Verse 12, they shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. Now I ask you a question. Which is the worst situation? To have a famine of food or to have a famine of the word of God? We would say right away, oh, famine of food. Of course, you know, I'm going to die in a couple days if I don't get food. But really, unless your life after this life is set up, it's a worse situation. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus teaching there, he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Just as our physical needs are important, so are our spiritual needs. In fact, Jesus would say even more so, right? Our spiritual needs are more important. If you're starving spiritually, but you're well-fed physically, you're in a worse position than the person who is starving physically instead of spiritually. A person who is feasting on God spiritually, but starving physically, they're in a better place. They're in a better condition. Here's another thing, too. Before we leave famine altogether, famine is actually one of the key components in the story of the prodigal son. You'll remember it's that story in the prodigal son where it's that point where the famine hits the land and the son's like, man, I'm screwing up. He comes to his senses and realizes, I don't know how I got here, but I'm in a bad place. I need to go back to my father, right? And so just as that son realizes he needs to go back to his earthly father, so God can sometimes use those same circumstances to cause his spiritual children to yearn to go back to their spiritual father. Okay. Moving on then. <laughs> let's leave famine. All right. And uh, let's look at, at something else that comes out of this verse here. In this verse here, in verse 1, now there was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. The first famine that was in the days of Abraham. That is referring back to chapter 12, verse 10, where Abraham, there was a famine, and they went down to Egypt. All right, so this is a reference to that other famine, when Abraham took his family, took his clan down to Egypt. All right, so that's conjuring up in the minds of the hearers and in the minds of the readers, um, kind of setting the stage for us. But then there's also this mention, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, and Gerar. We've seen Abimelech. That name's been mentioned as well. Okay, But it wasn't an association with the same story. All right, Abraham, he went down to Egypt. He dealt with Pharaoh. All right, But later, Abraham went to the presence of Abimelech or a guy named Abimelech. Is it the same guy that Isaac's going into the presence of? Well, I can tell you this. Abraham, uh, that time that he went to Abimelech, and this time now that we're talking about, it's separated by about 75 years at the minimum to 107 years on the outside. It's probably not the same guy, okay? Just as in Egypt, the rulers of Egypt, Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh, all right? So in this land, it's probably Abimelech, and Abimelech, and then Abimelech. Actually, Abimelech means my father is king. So you can imagine, you're the king. What am I going to name my son? Let's see, my dad named me Abimelech. That means my father is king. I think I'll name my son Abimelech too. All right, so you have these Abimelechs, Abimelech, Abimelech. It's one of the favorite names that seems to show up a lot. In fact, indeed, 965 years later, David writes Psalm 34, and he ends up saying, or we have a notation there, about an Abimelech at that time. All right, so that's 965 years later. This is not the same guy. <laughs> All right, it's, it's a throne name is what it sounds like, or a throne title. Moving on to verse 2. Somebody mind reading verse 2? The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. Do not go down to Egypt. 
Abraham went to Egypt in the time of famine. But God has different instructions here. All right. In fact, you remember the time that Abraham went down to Egypt. That chapter was devoid of Abraham seeking God's guidance. Right. So this seems to kind of hint that maybe that wasn't God's intention. And you remember how that turned out. Next time we found some Egyptian mention, it was, oh, we've got an Egyptian slave. <laughs> Why don't you sleep with her and have a kid? Well, that didn't work out so well. All right. So this whole going to Egypt thing, that didn't work out so well for Abraham. Maybe that wasn't God's plan, but God was able to work his will out despite them making those choices. Here we have God specifically saying to Isaac, do not go down to Egypt. All right. Interestingly, we know from the last chapter, chapter 25, verses 22 and 23, that God already appeared and spoken to Rebekah. But here this is our first record that God is speaking to Isaac. Uh, we mentioned how Abraham went down to Egypt. That was a favorite place to go in times of famine especially, all right, because they had that Nile River. They had the really fertile soil. They seemed to do well or at least better than most of the lands at the time during times of famine. We'll also see that later on in the book of Genesis with Joseph. When we get to Jacob and then his son Joseph especially, that's a whole going down to Egypt thing during a time of famine as well. So going to Egypt during a famine seemed to be the standard procedure, all right, the standard practice. But here God is specifically telling Isaac, no, don't go down there. And in fact, that verse ends with this interesting phrase, in the land which I shall tell you. Does that sound familiar from anywhere? A land that I shall tell you? Go to Genesis 12, 1. The Lord said to Abram, as for you, leave your land, your relatives, and your father's household for a land which I will show you. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. To a land that I will show you. Same kind of idea, right? Because that's what's going on here when God is speaking to Isaac. He says, the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Right? It sounds like the same kind of flavor. All right? The same kind of idea. Hey, I want you to trust me. I got a solution in mind. And uh, I'll reveal it to you as you need. All right? Does God always reveal to us everything that he's going to do in our lives? No, he doesn't. All right? So in this situation, it's similar to what we see in our lives. That God reveals to us what we need as we need it. All right? And right now, God's saying, I want you to go to the land which I shall show you. So one of the things I want you to see here is that when we do get to that land, we're going to find out that it's a land that's actually in an area that you would think would still be affected by the famine. All right. It's not an especially fertile area. It's actually an area that if Canaan is devastated by a famine, this area is pretty much well associated with Canaan. In fact, it would be in and among the land that God promises to give them. All right. So God is telling them to go to a place that geographically isn't too different from where he's already experiencing famine. Where he's at, we don't know for sure when this chapter opens. The last time we found a reference to where he was, it was Beir Lahai Roy, the place where God sees, right? And that's actually south of this. So instead of going south to Egypt, God's calling him north. Just a little bit, not too far, but he's calling him a little bit north, all right, is where he's going to end up here in this chapter. Let's move on. Verse 3, somebody might read in verse 3. Well in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. Excellent. Thank you, Esther. So we read Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The language of this verse sounds kind of like the language of Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, the next two verses. So going back to that Genesis chapter 12, we already looked at verse 1, and that had that flavor of to the land that I will show you. Here in this verse, you can see parallels to verses 2 and 3 of Genesis 12. Genesis 12, 2 and 3 says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's kind of the same flavor. That speech over in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3 is the original call of God upon Abraham. This speech is the original call of God upon Isaac, and it has the same flavor, the same tone to it, okay? 
Within these verses, and including the next verse, we have six different promises that God makes. All right? Let's go ahead and look at those six different promises. Somebody mind reading verse 4 there. And I will make your descendants <clears throat> multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And can you hear it there? Even in that verse, it sounds like the verses that are over in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. All right, so let's look at some of these blessings, especially looking at verses 3 and 4. What do you see there? What are some of the blessings? I will be with you. I will be with you. What's the next one? I will bless you. I will bless you. I will be with you. I will bless you. What's the third one there? Give you these lands. Yes. Give to you and your descendants, right? Mm-hmm. And what is he promising to give them? The lands. Good. What's the fourth one? I will perform the oath. There we go. Perform the oath. All right. Number five, you have to go to them first. What do you see in number five? Uh, multiply the sentence. Good. Multiply your descendants. And number six. Give your descendants the land. It's got to repeat, right? Mm. So yeah, it's something that we've already seen right here in number three. And then what's after that one? The nations shall be blessed in your seed or because of you. So I can put bless all nations in your seed. All right, let's talk about a few of these. All right, so I will be with you. God makes these promises to Isaac in these verses here, verses three and four. I will be with you. I will bless you. I will give to you and your descendants this land. I will perform the oath that I gave to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants. I will bless all nations in your seed. These are the I wills. These are the promises of God. We've seen these before. God gave these same promises to Abraham. Well, except for one. I will be with you. This is the first time that this one appears. I will be with you. So the other ones we've seen before. God made these promises to Abraham, and now we're seeing a transference of these promises to Isaac. Does God keep his promises? Yeah. Have we ever run into that before? Mm-hmm. God keeps his promises. You'll remember there was one day, and we repeated over and over and over again, and everybody was like, okay, it's getting tiring. Mm-hmm. All right, it was like, God keeps his promises, God keeps his promises. You know, we did that lots and lots of times. Because I wanted all of us to go away with this firm idea that nobody's going to ever shake it out of our minds, that God keeps his promises. All right? So, yes, God keeps his promises. But here we have a new one. I will be with you. Turn to Matthew twenty-eight twenty, the very last verse of the entire Gospel of Matthew. What does it say over there? And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So the last recorded words of Yeshua, of Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew include this promise. This promise that God made to Isaac, that I will be with you. I will be with you is a promise that wasn't just exclusively for Isaac. It's a promise that we can enjoy and appreciate. That Yeshua himself ends up saying, I'm going to be with you. All right, And we, the hearers, the readers, get to benefit from that recognizing if we're identified in that family, we're identified in that blessing as well, that promise as well. All right, going back then to Genesis chapter 26, verse 3. Let's look at a couple of the words that are over there. Genesis chapter 26, verse 3. One of the things that we do see is that when God promises the blessing, right, he promised Abraham the blessing in chapter 12, verse 2, and we've seen that already, right? In Genesis 12, verse 2, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. It was one of those that was in that initial call of Abraham. And then we saw the fulfillment in chapter 24, verse 1, at the end of his life, where it says, and God had blessed him, all right? We saw the fulfillment of it. In Isaac, it's something different. We see in chapter 25, 11, that God had blessed Isaac. In fact, turn to Genesis 25, 11. Genesis 25, 11, what does it say over there? Somebody mind reading that one? It came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Beer Lahiroi. Excellent. Thank you, Esther. We have God blessing Isaac 
in association with or in conjunction with the timing of the death of Abraham, right? That was probably a hard place to get through, right? Mm -hmm. For Isaac to get through, his dad dies. That was probably a real low point. That was really a hard time. Uh, But we had the mention that God had blessed him, past tense, Isaac, and then the promise comes later, which is where we're at. So in Abraham's life, we had the promise, and then later we had the fulfillment. In Isaac's life, we see an already fulfillment before we even read about the promise. Does that mean God's blessing ends? No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that that ends. It means that God blesses beginning and end. God blesses at the start and God blesses at the end. All right. Here's another thing to recognize as well. What is the association in this second time of the blessing? In 26.1 especially, is this a hard time he's going through? Mm-hmm. What is it? What's going on? Yeah. It's a famine. <laughs> if you're in charge of everybody, right? You've got your whole group, the whole clan. All right, this is not just you and your family members. He's in charge of the estate that Abraham passed on to him. We're talking servants. We're talking possibly hundreds of people. And Isaac's in charge and there's no more food. Yeah, this is probably a really hard time. And it could be in desperation. Where are we going to go? And God tells him, uh, if your first idea is Egypt, put that out of your mind and recognize I can preserve you. Now, God would have a promise to you that he can preserve you in the hard and the lean times, right? But you might still be tempted to take an alternate way. You might still be tempted to take an alternate direction thinking, but I know how to best meet the needs of all these people that I'm in charge of. I know what it's going to take to provide for them. And God, if he was to say to you, I have a different way in mind for you, and it doesn't make sense to you, what are you going to choose? It's kind of a test in a sense, right? So here we have a test, but it's a really hard time. We see God promising, I will be with you, and then we see blessings from God to Isaac in the hardest times of his life. In the hardest times of his life. It's not that God doesn't bless in the other times. It's that sometimes in the hardest times of our life, that's when it's proclaimed louder. So that we as outsiders, distanced by thousands of years, it's clear to even us that God blesses even in hard times. So he had hard times he was going through and blessings associated with it at the same time. The word oath, where do you see that? In verse 3, it's that promise, right? Promise number 4. And I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. The word here that's used for oath is the same word that's used only in one other place in association with Abraham. Chapter 22. In 22.16, this is the only previous place that this word appears in a slightly different form, but in verse 16, and said, by myself I have sworn. Who's speaking here? God's speaking, right? The Lord is speaking. And said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. What's the background? What's the context of this? He's sacrificing Isaac. Isaac. Abraham has responded in obedience, taken his son Isaac, and gone to sacrifice him in obedience to the command that God gave him. And in that process, God comes through in a big way, right? And he doesn't end up having to sacrifice his son. Who's the one on the altar? Isaac's the one on the altar. And you remember we talked about how old Isaac was, and it wasn't like he was a little boy, mm-hmm. all right? That was probably a situation I'm pretty sure that Isaac still remembers. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that made a mark, all right? Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that that was a momentous period in his life. And here we have what? Over in chapter 26, God is reminding Isaac of the oath he swore to Abraham. And Isaac would be thinking, I remember that day. I was bound and I was laying on the altar and I thought my life was done. I remember that oath that God mentioned in talking with my father. 
And so in Isaac's mind, he's probably got a really clear picture of that setting because he was there. He was in the bad place, <laughs> right? The place you didn't want to be. So that's what's conjured up in his mind probably when God mentions this oath that was promised. And when you read the oath that's over there in Genesis chapter 22, God just poured it on. He poured it on for Abraham. He was saying, you know what? He was basically reiterating everything he had said in chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. And then all of this that we're reading up here, it shows up again. It's amplified again over there in chapter 22 at the Akedah. Verse 4. Verse 4, and I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. We saw that before in the Akedah in chapter 22. I will give to your descendants all these lands. We've seen that before at Mount Moriah. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. We've seen that as well before. And then in the New Testament, Peter, in Acts chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, that seed that's mentioned here, Peter says, that's Christ. That's Jesus. Paul, in Galatians 3.16, says that seed that's mentioned here, that's Christ. That's Yeshua. That's Jesus, the Messiah. All right? So Peter and Paul, both in the New Testament era, saying the reference back then, ultimate fulfillment, Jesus. Ultimate fulfillment, Jesus. Verse 5. Somebody might read it in this one. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriella. So does it sound like obedience is an important factor in this? It is. God blesses, but there's something about obedience that shows up too. Something that would suggest to us that obedience is an important factor. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, and you don't have to turn there right now. I'll just, you'll recognize the story instantly when I start to talk about it. Jesus, in his teaching, he's teaching about what? A wise man who builds his house upon a rock. And a foolish man who builds his house upon the sand, right? And what happens to a house on the rock? It stays firm. When the storms come, that house is still going to be standing after the storm. And what happens to the other house, the house that's built on the sand? When the storms come, that house is going to fall. All right, because it doesn't have a good foundation, it's not built on stone. It needs to be built on stone for it to withstand those storms. What is like the wise man who builds his house upon the rock? The wise man is what? He's the one who hears and obeys. What is the qualification for the foolish man? It's the one who hears and doesn't obey. They both hear. You're sitting next to other people in church or your Bible study or wherever you might be, and you might be sitting next to somebody. They're hearing just like you are. But unless there's obedience, that house is going to crumble. When we go to church, Mike goes to a really big church. When he's sitting in a really big church with a whole lot of people around him, he doesn't know which ones are built on stone and which ones are built on sand because they're all hearing. But when it comes down to it, what those people do with the words that they heard is going to make a difference in their life. And that's no different in our situations. What we do with what we hear is going to make the difference of whether we're building upon a rock or we're building upon sand. We need to not just be hearers of the word. It's great if you know God's word, but if you're not doing it, it doesn't amount to much of anything, all right? You can answer the trivia questions, but your house isn't built on rock unless you put it into obedience, unless you allow it to change your life. So here we have a situation where obedience is definitely amplified here in verse 5 because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And then verse 6 there seems to suggest that Isaac accepted and received the words of the Lord because it says what? Isaac dwelt in Gerar. It sounds like he's obeying. It doesn't say Isaac disobeyed God and went to Egypt. <laughs> Instead of saying Isaac disobeyed God and went to Egypt, it says so Isaac dwelt in Gerar. So in summary, let's look at a few of the highlights that we looked at today. Number one, we talk about famine. We take for granted that we've got food all the time. But we need to recognize famines are past and they're present and there's also future. All right. 
Uh, regarding famines, though, sometimes it's God's judgment. Sometimes it's God's attempt to serve as a wake-up call, to wake us up as a nation, as a society. And maybe it's our nation, maybe it's some other nation, but sometimes God uses that to say, you know what, I want you to be calling out to me. I want you to come back to me. I don't want you to be following your own pursuits. I want you to be following the path that I have for you. One other thing we learned is God is able to preserve. God is able to preserve his people even in a place of famine. All right. And whether it's a famine of food or whether it's, you know, some other situation that's a hard time that you're going through, God is able to preserve his children in going through those. Some of the verses that we didn't read yet that have to do with that, I want to read right now. Psalm 33, 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Psalm 37, 18 and 19 says this. The Lord knows the day of the upright. And their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time. And in the days of famine, they shall be satisfied. God knows how to satisfy his people. God knows how to provide for his people in desperate times. Another thing is when it comes to a famine of the word of God and a famine of food, all right, the famine of the word of God is, is the worst place to be in. All right? uh, we need to recognize, just as Jesus said, quoting from Deuteronomy, the words of Moses, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We need to be making sure that we're getting the nourishment we need from God's word, even so much so to say it's more important than feeding ourselves with food that we get at the grocery store. <laughs> and then we see here, too, God keeps his promises. The promises are being passed from Abraham to Isaac. God keeps his promises. Is obedience important? Absolutely. We see that in this verse 5. Obedience is important. And then that last one that I want to emphasize is that when God makes the promises, says, I will be with you, it shows up loud and clear in the times that we're most desperate. It shows up loud and clear in the times that we're suffering the most, that God would say to us, I will be with you. And just as he said it to Isaac, so Jesus reiterates it in the very last words recorded in the book of Matthew, I will be with you. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promises, and we thank you, Lord, that you show yourself by pattern to be a God who keeps his promises. As the creator of the heavens and the earth, you still are mindful of us. How is that? How is it that you even take notice of us? Lord, we sit here and we're humbled and in awe of how that could be. But we thank you that you've cared enough for us that you sent your son to die in our place and provide for us the opportunity to have not just this life to live, but all of eternal life extended to us if we would just receive it. And we thank you, Lord, for the challenge to recognize also that obedience is an important factor, that we need to not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. Help us to be those people who get up and after hearing a message, go and be changed. Go and do something in accordance with how you've challenged us individually. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.